0: Uh, this event is called I Still Haven't Found What I'm Looking For. And of course, what a great job, the bandit. Come on, the open it. amazing. So cool. Well done to those guys. I suppose if you're here at someone's invitation, because you got an invitation card or you saw this, you got an invitation to your letterbox or you saw it in social media. I suppose the question is, what are you looking for? I mean, what am I looking for? What what what, what does this mean? What is Bono referring to when he says I still haven't found what I'm looking for. And today I want to add in a question, a more, more profound question, because I think the, the question is not just a one-sided question. It's not just what are you looking for, but it's also what is looking for you. Because there's something in us that knows that we're, we're like a plug and we need a socket. We need pl- we need, our lives be plugged into something for us to live this life Fully. I think one of the reasons why the song, the U2 song, is so prolific, why it's such a, an iconic uh, ballad rock song, song of all time, is because it captures in the song the tension that we all feel deep in our soul. This, this tension, this, this, this desire, this hunger to be connected, this hunger to be made well, this hunger to understand purpose and meaning, this hunger to be made whole. Something in us longs to be made well and to be made whole. Now, at the moment, it may not be fashionable. Our world may not want it. Our world may reject faith or church or religion or Jesus or the Bible. And I think largely the reason why the world rejects is the same reason why I rejected the beginning. And that is not because the world knows it, has got it, and doesn't want it. It's because the world misunderstands the person of Jesus, the message of the gospel, the purpose of the church. And because Yes, there's been scandals and abuses and all the things that have happened in recent history and in antiquity, but still we find that's a human problem, not a God problem. God works in our lives despite of us being human and despite of our humanity. And even though our world right now may be viciously uh, against uh, questions and conversations of faith, there is no doubt that our world needs it because our world has gone mental. Has anyone noticed how crazy the world is right now? When you have politicians putting up banners saying, we need to take back our streets. And you've like talking about bringing the army into our capital city to stop anti-social behaviour, That's just local Irish stuff. You go beyond Ireland, the world has gone mad. The world has been mad for a very long time. And here's the point. We have never been more richer, more comfortable, more healthier, more intelligent. They've had more AI. We've never had more resources at our disposal. And yet we still haven't found... What we're looking for, we still fall short of the ability to fix ourselves. There's something in us that knows intuitively, deep in our soul, that we are made for more, and there's more to life than this. But here's the issue, here's, here's the pushback. The issue is, this is what I'm pu- purporting to use, what I'm putting forward today in the message, is that in order to truly find what we are looking for, and what I mean by that is meaning, purpose, and satisfaction. And I don't mean satisfaction in the Mick Jagger kind of satisfaction, because he's been looking for satisfaction for a very long time, and he also clearly hasn't found it because he keeps singing the song. But the point is this I mean satisfaction in a sense of, 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 of being whole, of being well, of, of, being, of being this sense of being complete, sense of, of knowing who I am and whose I am and what my purpose is in the world. In order to find what we're looking for meaning, purpose, and satisfaction, we must wrestle with. And answer the question, who is Jesus? Now, in a few moments, I'm gonna open up God's word. I'm gonna hopefully, in a story I want to share with you, bring out some of the nature and character and power in the person of Jesus. But if we're gonna sing a U2 song and we're gonna wrestle with what did Bono really mean we wrote the song, why not hear from Bono's lips himself? No, he's not here in person, that would be awesome. Uh, But a few years ago uh, on the Late Late Show, Bono has been interviewed by a very famous, well, the most famous. Some of you are like new to Ireland. You're thinking, oh, Late 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 Show. Oh, Ryan Tuberty. No, no, no. Before there was ever a Ryan Tuberty, there was a Gay Burn. That's right. And Gay Burn was an institution in this nation. I mean, I grew up in 27 years. I think he was the host of the Late Late Show. And a couple of years ago, before he passed, he interviewed Bono and he asked Bono the question, Bono, who is Jesus? Here's what Bono said.
1: I look to the scriptures for poetic truth, um, as well as the sort of historical stuff I'm, I'm, I'm in, interested in. And of course, there was a histo- historical Jesus. You no, know, I'm talking about God. Oh, right. And, and do well, you, I see uh, I, the, the person of Christ is my way to understand uh, God? Do you pray? Yes. To whom or what do you pray? To and Christ. In way? To Christ. Yeah. And and what do you pray for? Pray to get to know um, the will of God, because then the prayers have more chance of coming true. I mean, that's the thing about prayer, isn't it? I mean, we don't do it in a very lofty way in our family. There's just a bunch of us on the bed, usually. We're a very big bed in our house. And all our, we've prayed with all our kids. We, we you know, we just, we, we read the scriptures, we pray. It's not even regular Sometimes if we go to church on a Sunday, we go when the church has ended, and we'll just go in on our own as a family for peace and quiet. And for peace and quiet, and we'll pray, usually about people that we know who are struggling with something, um, illness or so, so, so whatever. So then, what or who was Jesus, as far as you're concerned? I think it's the it's a defining question for a Christian is who was Christ, and and I don't think you're let off easily. By saying a great thinker or a great philosopher, or a, you know, because actually he went round saying he was the Messiah. That's why he was crucified. He was crucified because he said he was the Son of God. So he either, in my view, was the Son of God, or he was not. No, no, nuts. Nuts. Yes. Forget yes. rock and roll messianic complexes. This is like I mean, Charlie Manson. Type delirium. And I find it hard to accept that all the millions and millions of lives, half the earth for 2,000 years, have been touched, have felt their lives touched and inspired by some nutter. I just, I don't believe it. I, so I think, therefore, it follows that you believe he was divine. Yes. And therefore it follows that you believe that he rose physically from the dead. Yes. Yeah. I'm into, uh, I mean, I am no problem with miracles. <laughs> I'm living around them. I am one. So, so when you pray then, you pray to Jesus. Yes. The risen Jesus. Yes. And you believe that he made promises which will come true. Yes.
0: I do. How amazing is that, everybody? That amazing. There's Bono's own testimony, answer the question, who is Jesus? So moving along then, answer the question, how do we find what we are looking for? So how do we find, how do we find that meaning, purpose, and significance? We're going to turn together to John's word, or God, John, God's word, John's gospel, chapter five, and we're going to look at verse one uh, to verse nine. Now, most of you will know there's four gospels in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And uh, John was a personal friend of Jesus. And John wrote about what he saw, what he experienced in his time with Jesus. And in chapter 5, he tells this incredible story, this obscure story of a miracle, like Bono said, a miracle of a man being healed. It says this in verse 1, Some time later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for a feast of the Jews. Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, Uh, and which is surrounded by four covered colonnades. So John sets up the story by giving us context. If you read the book of John in in its entirety, you'll know that he was coming from Galilee. It's where Jesus did most of his ministry, north of Jerusalem. The reason why, even though he was north of Jerusalem, he was going up to Jerusalem is because Jerusalem was on the hills. That's why he's going up to Jerusalem. And uh, he was going for one of the Jewish festivals because Jesus was a Jew. He was the Messiah, but he also was a Jew and followed God's word. Now, verse 2 there near this sheep gates, so obviously being a medieval city or even an ancient city, I should say long before the medieval times, being but like a medieval city, uh, it, was a, it, was a, it was a kind of a fort with, with walls and, the, and around this city, there were different gates into the city, and different gates had functions, just like your house has functions there 's perhaps a utility room door there 's a back door, a patio door, a front door, all sorts of doors into your house, and every one of those doors has a function similarly. In the uh, city of Jerusalem, each gate had a function. And this particular gate, where this event happened, was called the Sheep Gate. And the reason why it was called the Sheep Gate was because all the animals that would have been used uh, in worship in in the temple were all kept outside that gate in pens. And as they were needed, they were brought in through the Sheep Gate up into the temple. Now, you can imagine what must have been like near the Sheep Gate if thousands of animals especially during a festival time where we're coming into the city. It mustn't smell good. It mustn't look good. And you pretty should be careful where you stepped. Now imagine being near a sheep gate and being a cripple that couldn't walk. And now you're getting kind of first century life for most people. And we're told that near this gate, there was a pool, not, a, not like a swimming pool, like an aura, but a pool, a kind of a, a Roman style pool, which in Aramaic was called Bethesda. Now Some of you know that the Jewish people's original language was Hebrew, but the reason why some Jews or most Jews at this time spoke Aramaic was because when they were taken by the Babylonians into exile to Babylon and came back, they had this new language called Aramaic. It's a bit like how we here in Ireland, our original language is Irish, but we all speak. Well, not really, do we? Because some of you come from other countries and you thought we spoke English, you learned English, And you arrived here and you thought, are these guys still speaking Irish? What's happening right now? No, we speak our own version of English. Now, there's a little bit of tension with this because some people think we do it out of, we don't speak correct English out of ignorance. But the truth is, it may have started that way, but it didn't continue that way. For example, one of the classic things I often get from people is, oh, say, duh. I say, duh. Say, tree, as in the number tree. Say, 333 a third. It's like, and they're like, where's your TH, man? It's the, it's three, 33, 333 and a third. And it's like, well, the reason why we couldn't do the TH sound was because there was no TH sound in the Irish language. So we were trying to speak the language and not having the ability to produce a sound. So you know what it's like, come from other countries. And then we realized how much it annoyed the English. So we kept doing it. And we'll keep doing it until Jesus comes back. That's why the Irish talk like this. So much like us, we have this other language going on. This was what was happening at the time. And this place was called Bethesda, which literally means house of mercy, place of refuge, house of mercy. And uh, we're told this very interesting detail. We're told that the pool was surrounded by five covered colonnades. This is really interesting. Why? Because what so many of the New Testament authors would do to give validity to what they were writing is to add in historical or significant archaeological or political detail so that the account could be fact-checked. And believe it or not, for, for a large part of the 19th century, the Enlightenment era, this is one of the verses that the Enlightenment types used to discredit the Christian message. Uh, There was major archaeological pushback when it came to John 5. Why? Because a bunch of archaeologists set out in the early 1800s to go and find the Pool of Bethesda near the Sheep Gate in Jerusalem. And when they couldn't find it, they published all these articles saying... We couldn't find it, it's not there, therefore it doesn't exist, therefore John Phi was a lie, therefore the New Testament is bogus, therefore the whole Christian message nonsense and a whole bunch of people, for the better part of 50, 60 years, wrestle with what was at that time confirmed and trustworthy reliable science. Well, fast forward the clock, a uh, couple of decades, and in the early 20th century, some archaeologists went back with more, with better equipment, more sophisticated uh, uh, training measures, whatever, and they actually uncovered the pool uh, of Bethesda at the Sheep Gate. And what they found, how they know it was the one, was because there were five colonnades. Now, if you match with me, my Bible has how many sides? One, two, three, and... Four, so the the pool was in the middle, and it was surrounded by five colonnades. But there's also a central colonnade that divided it almost into two pools. And what the archaeologists were able to uncover was that the sheep gate existed, that the pool existed, and that all the colonnades were there, which actually has the reverse effect, which this may not be interesting to you, but it's really interesting to me, that archeology span doesn't discredit the Bible, nor can dispute the fact that the Bible is true. It only confirms, which is why of the greatest living archeologist, Nelson Gluck said this, he said, it may be stated categorically that no archeological discovery has ever contradicted a Bible or biblical reference. So John put that in there knowing somehow that one day they'd be scrutinized and it stands up to that scrutiny. Now, historic news in verse three, we're told the purpose of this pool at this time. So imagine it's a festival time. It's like, it's like St. Patrick's Day in the city. There's, there's hundreds of thousands of people that aren't normally there all here for the city. It's like a big game day. And they're all here. The temple's doing all these special things, all the animals, all these people, all these animals, all the result of people and animals. And in the midst of all this chaos, you have all the crippled, all the blind, all the disabled, all the people, and all sorts of diseases and illnesses. A great number, we're told, used to lie on the ground by the sheep gate near the pool. And the reason why they did this, as we're going to see, was because they believed superstitiously that there was something in the water that could help them or maybe even heal them. And we're told in verse one, we don't know his name, we don't know his story, but we're told one, one was there, one person. In the great multitude, one person was there and he had been in his condition for 38 years. Now, again, let me just try to put some context here. This was a day where there were no doctors. There were almost no hospitals, and there was no healthcare. If you had the uh, misfortune of being born with some kind of illness or disability or disease, I mean, that was it. You were kind of on your own. In fact, a lot of societies not only had no uh, support systems to, to help you, but actually they would make up cultural reasons to justify why you were even sick in the first place, which would allow them to abdicate their responsibility in taking care of you. Which, by the way, that was the case for most of human history. It was Christians who largely changed Human culture worldwide, when all of a sudden, great people like Mother Teresa gave up their lives to help the sick and create what is now called a hospital, a place of hope where people can, uh, be, can recover. The point is, they were clearly desperate. They were desperate to be in the city with all the, all the crowds, all the animals. They were desperate for help, desperate for healing. And when you're desperate, very often, human nature, you turn to whatever you can to help you. So not only were they desperate, but they also turned to superstition. And here's what happens. We're told again by by archeologists that these two pools actually, actually existed uh, as, a, as a natural spring, and you all know what a natural spring is. It's basically what you get in the sauna, but it's organic, everybody. You know what I'm saying? There's no pump pumping that water. It's just mud or earth, just pump up that water. And so what would happen is, is when the, the water would begin to, to gurgle, to stir, to, to turn, superstitiously, people believed that the angels of God had come down and stirred the water, stirred the water for the glory of God. And the idea was the first person in gets healed. So everyone would come, crowd in the pool, sit there in the baking heat, all the animals, all the result animals, all the mess, all the chaos, all the stuff. And they would wait for the water to move. And as soon as the water started moving, it was a race to see who can get in the water first to be healed. Which, by the way, what kind of theology is that? Who wants to follow a God that heals people if they make it into a pool first when the angels start up? Of course... It's nonsense, but that's what people do when they don't have faith, they turn to nonsense. And the, and the kind of uh, made-in-China version of super-truth is superstition. And we're told in all that chaos and all desperation, one was there, one was there. And we're told that he wasn't just anyone or someone, we're told he was hopeless. I mean, because his condition was one that he literally would have to crawl he would have to drag his body through all the crap on the ground, try somehow crawl faster than other disabled people could maybe limp or walk, and try get into the water with the hope that somebody might help him. If not, somehow he'd be everybody else, and that he would have hope. What's so sad, which which is also true even in today's world, is that for this one, his illness had become his identity. You see. He wasn't just crippled. He wasn't just a person with an issue. He wasn't just a person with a disability. He wasn't a person that was living with real life challenges. He had allowed himself to become a cripple. And how many of us, I mean, I I can't even imagine what it would be like to live like this, but I know sometimes when I've been sick, I remember a couple of years ago, I was on a trip when I came home, I had a, a fever, kind of like malaria, it's called dengue fever. I don't recommend you get dengue, everybody. Someone offers you free dengue, stay away from the dengue. It ain't good. And it was so bad because I had like, you know, fever spikes. This is all before COVID was a thing. And, and I had this headache, right? And this headache lasted from August all the way to the end of November. I had a headache for so long. I couldn't even imagine what it was like not to have a headache. That's how bad it was. And I got so crazy, I got so, I got so frustrating. It wore me down so much that I began to believe I'm going to be like this for the rest of my life. Like this illness, this, this infection, this virus in my body is actually going to become my future, my identity. I just, I, I, I just became so real and so, and so powerful. I couldn't see to break it. That all of a sudden I was, I was envisioning my life not being able to do the things I used to be able to do before, which is a very sad thing when our illness becomes our identity. What's also sad is, as the uh, great thinker and orator Spurgeon said, he said, a multitude of needy people were there, yet none of them looked to Jesus. A blindness had come over these people at the pool. They were there and there was Christ who could heal them, but not a single one of them sought him. Their eyes were fixed on the water, expecting it to be troubled. They were so taken up with their own chosen way that the true way was neglected. So in all the chaos and confusion of the water and the angels and beating the guy beside you and all this stuff, nobody really recognized that there in their midst, as Bono said, was the Messiah. The Messiah is a a, a Hebrew term, means the, the promised one, the sent one, the savior. Right there in the midst was the answer, was the one that deep down they were looking for. But here's what's really encouraging. Here's why you know the Gospel of John is called the Gospel gospel, which means good news. It's because even when the man couldn't see Jesus, and even when the man wasn't looking for Jesus, we're told in verse 6: Jesus saw him. Jesus saw him. Jesus saw one. One, broken, disabled, beaten up, lonely, left for dead, hopeless and helpless man. And Jesus cared for him. It says, when he learned, Jesus saw him. And when he learned, he had been in this condition, not as density, a condition. For a long time, he asked the man, this is is a crazy question. Do you want to get well? Do you want to get well? Which again, may seem crazy, but I'll unpack that in a second. The point is, Jesus saw him. Jesus saw him, and because Jesus saw him, we can take encouragement that Jesus sees you. you may be one right now in a crowd. Maybe not everyone knows you. Maybe you don't want everyone to know you. <clears throat> Maybe you can't know everyone. But in all the chaos of life and the hustle and bustle and grabbing planes and trains and buses and working in offices and working out in gyms, in all, your, in all your living and doing and being, even though you may feel like no one sees you and no one knows you and no one cares for you and no one loves you, the good news today for you is this: whether you believe or not, whether you want or not, whether you reject or not, whether you want to see or not, Jesus sees you. Not only does he see you, but he sees you and he seeks to help you. What's interesting was when Jesus asked the man the question: well, what the man was looking for, he was looking for a dig out, he was looking for, he was looking for a hand, he was looking for a bit of help. But Jesus wasn't offering the man a hand. Jesus offering the man something greater. The man was looking for a hand to beat everybody else into the pool, so maybe this mysterious, miraculous angel-like figure, supposedly, would bring healing to his body. What's amazing is that as a man who had this condition for, for almost four decades, he was still there with a little bit of hope, a little bit of hope that something could happen. But Jesus wasn't offering him a hand. Jesus offering him healing. And the reason why I think Jesus asked the question, do you want to be healed? Was because it wasn't just about this stage for this man. It wasn't just about changing his condition or bringing back abilities and functions. It was about changing his identity. See, he wasn't just crippled, he'd become a cripple. And to be made well would mean it's a new life. It's a new identity. Everything changes When we we experience the healing power of God in our bodies and more importantly, in our hearts. The uh, cripple responds in verse seven, sir. So at least he has some manners, must've been raised well. He said, uh, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water stirred. So Jesus, the Messiah, the son of God is like, hey dude, you want to be healed? He's like, listen, man, I'd love some help because no one cares about me. No one loves me. No one sees me. Oh, I'm looking for a little bit of help. Someone just help me in this world. I would feel so much better. But Jesus is like, I'm not coming to soothe your issues. or comfort. You. I want to completely transform your brokenness and heal you for eternity. But of course, the man can't see that. He says, while I am trying to get in someone else, Goes down ahead of me. Come on. Don't we all have a someone else story? I was almost first, then someone else. I almost got the promotion Then someone else. I almost married her. Then someone else. And I almost and it's like it's almost like in every kind of sorrow story we have, it's always someone else did something, and what's usually that's that is they did it in a way that wasn't just. Like they broke the rules. They didn't follow through the word. You know, it wasn't fair. The reason why I am the way I am, the reason why I am where I am is because somebody else did something else and therefore here's why I am the way I am. It's so easy we fall into a victim mentality to blame the world or to blame God. And again, I I can't say I have personal experiences myself as a person, but uh, I went through this recently when about 10 years ago, my mother went blind. In her 40s, she uh, developed an illness called glaucoma, and she lost nearly all of her eyesight to the point where she's fully legally blind, has a guide dog, the whole thing, has, I think it's like 3% of just one eye left, Uh, and it was really painful as a family to watch your mother become disabled by a very real illness that was irreversible. And as we were trying to adapt to, to, to her new reality and trying to support her, oftentimes we'd We'd do the thing you think people want. You'd put your hand to guide her or whatever. And she would just slap that hand away. And she would push. She said, I don't want your help. And we'd be like, ma'am, what's what's the story? And I never forget one day I rang and I said, Ma'am, where are you? And she said, I'm in New York City. And I was like, What? I was like, with who? With the dog. What? And I'm like, what are you doing? She goes, I found some Irish homeless guy and we're here having the chats. I'm like, what? It's like who are you and of course she went on this shopping trip with her sisters, they went shopping, that she couldn't keep pace. She said, Go on ahead without me, I'll figure it out. She's wandering around Manhattan, her, her guy dog, and this homeless guy from Limick. God bless Limick. And it's like, what the heck is going on? And her whole point is this I may have been victimized by life, but I refuse to become a victim. I'm not going to allow that because that mentality gets in. I become bitter. I become angry. I blame people. I shut myself off from the world and I lose the relationships. And I lose the adventure of life. And so I haven't witnessed it person, but I've seen it, how it can happen, how easy it happens when we find ourselves in those kind of conditions. What's really interesting is, again, we see the man's perceived greatest need was that he was physically crippled. But the man's actual greatest need was that he was spiritually crippled. Now, you may not have walked in today with like obvious physical disabilities. You may be like myself, thank God, physically well, maybe you're not. But even if you are, the point is this, our greatest need, even if you have physical needs, our greatest need is not a physical one. God knows you, God loves you. And today I was even praying that even as I'm speaking right now in the name of Jesus, that God would heal Broken bodies heal sickness. They would heal people whose hearts are open today to hear the word of the Lord. But even if, even if you don't need physical healing, still we all share this. Our greatest need as human beings is a spiritual one. That we were made for more. That to, to, to find what we're looking for, meaning, purpose, significance, satisfaction. We need to know our Father in heaven. Like Bono said, we can only know him through the Son. The truth is, at best, like any therapeutic spring, the water could soothe the problem, but the water could never solve the problem. And this man had an opportunity to not just have his needs solved, his pain solved, his, his, his issues soothed, but actually to have them solved. But we see in his response three confessions. And these three confessions I often find as a pastor are the same confessions, not just people say sometimes with physical illnesses, but people say with spiritual ones. Number one, nobody will help me. If you knew what I went through, you'd know why I can't believe in God. If you knew my story, if you knew the pain, if you knew how I was all alone in this world and God never came, you would appreciate, you respect, you would understand why I can't put my faith in Jesus. And I would say the fact that you're still here tells me that God's not done yet. The fact that you're still standing shows me somewhere in your journey, there was mercy and there was grace and there may even have been miracles. And the fact that you're still standing shows me there is hope for tomorrow. But people say, well, I can't do it. I can't trust in God. I can't believe in God. I can't, I can't get over this. I just, I just can't do it. And it's like, well, the good news is you don't have to do because Jesus has already done it for you. Oh, but everyone else always gets ahead of me. Everyone else is, is, people are so much faster, stronger, more beautiful, more intelligent, more talented. They have the right skin color, the right accent. They come from the right family, the right social status. Whatever the nonsense is that we use, here's what Jesus says. The last in my kingdom shall be the first and the weakest shall be the greatest. See, there's a, there's a foolishness to me in this cripple's confession. It's a foolishness I often see in myself. It's a foolishness where, where in being a cripple for so long, in being so desperate, even to the point where he's believing in superstition, in, in trying everything, why would he not be willing to at least give Jesus a chance? I'm not saying you have to you know, sign up and get tattooed and you know, hand over all your possessions or whatever, but just at least give Jesus a chance. It was Calvin who said, the sick man does what we nearly all do. He limits God's help to his own ideas and does not dare promise himself. Watch the key word, more. Does not dare promise himself more that he conceives in his mind. Why? Because here's what we've learned through life. Here's the reason why we're so sometimes shut off and shut down and bitter and so unwilling to at least give Jesus a chance. If I lift my head up, if I stick my neck out, if I extend my hand, if I say to God, God, here am I. This guy is telling me that you see me and that you care about me and that you love me. And that maybe even you've got a plan and purpose for my life. The fear is when we do that, if we do that, that we will be rejected. That it won't work, it will fail, and we will be a failure. But the fact that Jesus is standing here in front of this man. And the fact that Jesus is in this room today guarantees there's more. There's all, because the more is not built on us, the more is built on him. And so somehow in all this chaos and confusion, the man's heart was open to Jesus to give him a chance. And so verse eight and nine, the last part of the story, Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. Three commands, get up Pick up your mat and walk. Now, in that moment, imagine this. Like, imagine being someone around Jesus' scripture thinking, what? Like, how insensitive. Like, how rude. Like, are you having the laugh? Like, imagine walking up some wheelchairs and like, hey, get up and walk. It's like, whoa, 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 whoa. You can't be walking around here telling people to get up out of wheelchairs and off of beds and just walk, right? That's so rude, so insensitive, that's so savage, that's so cruel. Unless, of course, the person you're saying it to gets up and walks. And you're left like, "Uh, I don't have a box for what just happened right now. And what's so interesting is Jesus gave the command, but the man had to obey. He had to do something that he hadn't done for 37 years. He had to in his heart believe that the word spoken over him because the one who spoke to him was powerful enough, more powerful than his condition and the decades and make a choice to believe and get up. <laughs> and what's so cool is the man came to the pool with his mat carrying him and he walked off carrying his mat. It's like a complete reversal of identity. We're told in verse nine at once, at once. Why? Because when we turn our hearts to God, God is immediate in his forgiveness. He is immediate in his mercy. He's immediate in his his power and provision. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and he walked. And you know, like Bono said, you may think that's a crazy story. That's a great fable. Listen, I believe in this. And you go, oh, don't say that. Why would you believe this? Well, because number one, if I believe that Jesus rose from the dead, the Son of God, I can believe anything the Bible says. That's easy. They start with Jesus being the Son of God and dying and rising again, and the rest is easy. But second of all, because I, with my own eyes, have witnessed God heal people. I don't forget, when I first became a Jesus follower, myself and my girlfriend at the time, who's my wife, uh, she had an earache. And she's like, oh, I have this really bad earache. And she would get these earaches, and it was like... She had this, she was just prone to them. And I've never really gotten eric, so I can't really empathize, but apparently Eric's are horrible. And she would, her erics were so bad, she'd have to get like antibiotics. You know what I'm saying? It wasn't like a painkiller. It was like, it was always, If she got one, it was always like, here we go, it's gonna be like a week of this and you know, all this kind of stuff. And so she has Eric and she said, would you pray for me? And I said, oh, I'll definitely pray for you. I said, would you pray for me now? Oh, I'll pray for you. It's like, would you pray out loud? And I'm like, oh, genie, Mac, pray out loud. <laughs> Every really prayed out loud before, you know what I'm saying? Like, where does one begin? And I don't even know what I said, and I guarantee it wasn't eloquent or beautiful or anything. It, just was, it was just full. Of, I just believed. And I believe, I didn't fully believe, you know what I'm saying? Like, it wasn't like I was absolutely convinced God would hear. I just knew he could. I just wasn't sure if he would. I just prayed anyway and just, just trust it. And as I prayed for her, literally she had this huge fright. I got a fright, I thought, my goodness, I popped her eardrum or something. And she's like, I'm healed. I'm like, what do you mean you're healed? She's like, I don't know, all the pain. I'm like, no, 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 don't say do it. Just like, yeah, and I'm like, and of course, I'm like thinking, I know I'm a Christian. I know I'm supposed to believe in this stuff. But when it happens, like, oh my gosh, like what the heck just happened? And she was healed. And over the years, I can tell you story after story after story of where we prayed. And people sometimes we pray, people aren't healed. It's not, it's not, it's not like a, 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 a what would you call it, like a transaction or, or a, an algorithm you use. It's God's will, God's power, God's healing. But all I'm saying is that when our desire to see someone heals, healed aligns with God's desire, there is power in the name of Jesus to heal people. Now the question we ask is been to bring this thing to a close today is, well, how does one respond to this exactly? How do you respond to this exactly? Bono said, I don't got a problem miracles. I see them all the time. I am one, and I get that. But oftentimes when we see these stories or we hear stories, our first reaction is, I can't believe that. I don't have the, I don't have the faith you have. I don't have the ability to try. I, I, I can't do this. Or sometimes we're stubborn. We say, well, I won't. Do this. I don't have the ability, no. I don't have the audacity. It just seems so audacious. So the audacity on you to believe that God loves you. And- like, do you know who you are? Like, it just seems like, you know, it seems preposterous that God knowing us in our mess, in our chaos, in our selfish- selfishness and sin, that God would do something for us. Or perhaps it's worse. You flip it over and you say, well, you say to God, you can't do this. Or you say to God, you won't do this. But here's the truth. The truth is the word of God works. The word works. When Jesus spoke to that man and he obeyed and he stood up, he was healed. When Jesus speaks to your heart and says, I love you, I know you and I've called you to an extraordinary purpose and you respond in your heart. The word of God works. When I was a 16 year old in a hotel room in Heidelberg, Germany, 20 years ago, and I prayed a half-hearted prayer to a God, I didn't even believe in. I opened the Bible. I think it was the book of Matthew. Didn't read a single word. I just said, God, if you're a man, show yourself. That's how coward people pray. Come on, somebody. If you're a man, be a man and show up. Let's go. And of course, I was fully expecting nothing to happen until the power and presence of God filled that room. And all of a sudden, I wasn't like, hallelujah, praise the Lord. I was like, oh crap. I didn't use that word, it was another word. But I was like, I'm in trouble because this means God is true and real and what he says is true and real and what he says about me is true. My whole world melted and all of a sudden, in an instant, I was completely Transformed completely, but in an instant, my heart was changed forever. And there was a 16-year-old rugby player playing rugby in Germany, who came back and decided, "I'm going to give the, I'm going to devote the rest of my life to telling people in Ireland, Jesus lives, Jesus loves, and Jesus liberates. That He is good, that He is risen, He is alive. And I agree with Bono, He is able." Here's the point as we close. The point is very simple. The man made a choice and he trusted in Jesus. What does that look like? When when we respond to Jesus' help, Jesus responds to our response and gives us hope. He was looking for help into the pool, but Jesus was looking to heal his soul. Because the man trusted Jesus, Jesus transformed the man. Because the man put a a little bit, a little ounce Of hope that he had left in his broken, tattered, worn out, crippled soul. Because he put that little bit of whatever was left in Jesus, Jesus took that little bit and completely transformed the man's life. It was like the uh, author Joyce Meyer says You see, you are a spirit. In your essence, that's what we are as a person. That's why when someone dies, we still talk about them in the present tense because we know that they're somehow somewhere. You have a soul, mind, will, emotions. You live in a body. You have emotions, you have thoughts, you have a will, and you have a conscience. You are a complex being. And Jesus came to heal every single part of you, body, soul, and spirit. There's not one part that he doesn't want to make completely whole. And ultimately, that promise will be fulfilled when one day the risen Jesus comes back and calls those who are dead in Christ to rise. But here's the point, God wants to heal us. God wants to help us. God wants to give us hope. The irony is, is the man may not have found what he was looking for. He was looking for help in some super spiritual, superstitious, poop-filled pool. But Jesus had something better. The man may not have found what he's looking for, but Jesus did. Because a man was looking for a quick fix, but Jesus was looking for the man. And the world will offer us cheap tricks. They'll offer us thermal pools and, you know, drugs and all these things, but, and some sometimes taking painkillers, sometimes going to a sauna or a spa is good. But none of these things have the power to change our soul. Only Jesus, only a risen and resurrected Jesus can change a human heart. See, we, like the man, We're looking for relief. Anything that can pause the pain, the chaos, the stress in our souls. But Jesus offers a hand. He offers us healing. He wants us to experience redemption. Jesus offers us the power to be whole, the power to be healed, the power to be set free. And even though we still live in an imperfect and broken world, Something lives in us, the presence of God lives in us as we trust Jesus and gives us grace and strength and kindness. Come on, somebody, Your world needs more kindness and patience and generosity and all the things that are described in the word as the fruit or the result or consequence of the work of the Spirit in us. Jesus offers us a new life. And for as long as we exist, That's the message that we will preach unapologetically, courageously, without any inhibition, because that is the power of the gospel, which is why we celebrate baptism. Because as we think about all those people getting baptized, not just in our Dublin location, but our Navin location, and our Dundalk location, that's what baptism is. A baptism is a physical demonstration of a spiritual reality. As the person goes under the water, what they're saying is the old me, the old way, the the person who had allowed their pain to become their identity, all that stuff, all that's now gone, the old has gone and the new has come. I rise as a new identity, as a new person, with a new life, new calling, a new purpose because of the love, power, and grace of Jesus Christ. The power in baptism is not in the pool, just like in Bethesda. The power is in the person of Jesus. And today, I want to encourage you. Jesus sees you. And I don't need to see you like passing by, like, yeah, whatever. He's actively seeking you. He's looking for you because he loves you as a plan and purpose for your life.